Hey Trojan fans, it's time to get into the huddle with the Peristyle Podcast. The Peristyle Podcast is your weekly ticket to USC football and recruiting news. Don't forget, you can download the podcast 24-7 at our new website, peristylepodcast.com. And now, here's the host of the Peristyle Podcast, uscfootball.com publisher, Ryan Abraham. Hello, Trojan fans, and welcome to episode number 261 of the Peristyle Podcast. Today is March 4th. 2013 got a great show for you this week on the Peristyle podcast the day before usc spring football 2013 kicks off we got dan weber coming up in the first segment talking all about usc spring football we'll answer some of your team questions as well and a little bit later on in the show we're going to have gerard martinez back on he will talk about usc recruiting we'll talk about the the recent junior day seven on seven tournament in las vegas this past weekend and Offers are starting to come a little more fast and furious. Some local guys have been offered as well, so we'll talk about all of that with Gerard Martinez. And if you have any questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. Podcast at uscfootball.com is our email address, or you can call 206-888-6755. Leave a brief voicemail there. Or also go to peristylepodcast.com, and you can leave a voicemail right on the left side of the page. And like I said, we have Dan Weber joining us in the first segment. He's put up the uh, spring football previews up on uscfootball.com. We're going to be out there on the practice field tomorrow. And for the first time in a couple of years, USC fans will be able to watch the practices as well. Dan, want to talk about all that? What's going on, sir? Hey, uh, it is a, it seems like a quick turnaround, especially with a kind of reconstituted coaching staff, uh, there aren't many uh, programs in the country that are starting any earlier. I think a lot of them, you know, are starting this week, but uh, you know, some some don't start for a couple of weeks. So USC, uh, I kind of like it that getting right back into it. You know, it doesn't seem like it was that long ago we were in El Paso, as much as we might like to not remember that moment. <laughs> but uh, uh, I think it's a good thing. I'm glad to see them get back out there, and, and I know people, you know do worry about this or worry about that, you know, well, with the new coaches, blah, blah, blah. My thinking is I'd like to see them learn by doing and just get out there and do it. And one of the things I'm looking forward to is having the new coaches bring their way of coaching with them. I mean, you know, you hire them, uh, you know, for what they bring to the table. And, and I really want to see them, you know, Clancy Pendergast, you know, Mike Summers, especially, you know, on one on offense and one on defense, who really are going to make a big difference, I think. And uh, the sooner they get to it, I think the better. You know, now, uh, this is uh, so not a lot of time, but but I think it's uh, let's get out there and uh, and I, you know, I was thinking about kind of a, a summary of what you want to see, and I guess what I'm wanting to see is that they learn or that they practice how they're going to practice. I think that's really, really important. Last year, they kind of got off the track on practicing. And uh, I think the spring is a, is a perfect time to practice the way you're going to practice. So you've got to do that out on the field. Yeah, good points, Dan. And uh, we're going to get into a lot of that. I just want to let people know, uh, Coach Harvey Hyde on secret assignment again this week. So last week I was out of town. This week it's actually him. He's, he's out of town. So unfortunately, we'll, we will have to uh, wait to hear from Coach Harvey Hyde 
next week. I know you guys had some questions and stuff for him. We'll we'll try to get to those uh, again next week, and we'll have a week of spring football under our belts. And uh, I'm sure Coach Harvey Hyde will be out there at least once or twice, and he can kind of share his thoughts as well. And uh, Dan, going into spring ball, I guess um, I mean the, the new coaches are, are probably going to be the the biggest storyline. We're going to try to hear from all of them and see how they do. But like you said, practicing, how important that is. Can they, are they going to be sharp at practice? Is it going to be, are you going to see what you see in practice? Are you going to see the same kind of things in the scrimmages on the weekend? And then obviously in the fall, you practice, you're going to see those in the games. And I guess one change I've seen already coach is the, uh, the new coaches are tweeting a lot. I don't know if that's a, a, a company decision you could say, like that's, that's come from inside USC, but we're seeing these, New coaches like Clancy Pendergast and Tommy Robinson actually out there uh, on Twitter tweeting and stuff and getting the, the word out there a little bit. This staff hadn't really been known for uh, big users of Twitter, but that's one thing I think they're doing differently. Well, I think it's a way to get get to the players. I mean, I think, to be honest, I think that's a way. Uh, there There isn't that much time. There haven't been that many, you know, opportunities for, you know, meetings and things like this. So this is a way, uh, you know, this has been – USC, you know, published all the kids, you know, Twitter handles and, and what have you. And, uh, you know, the players have certainly been there. And uh, so I think it's kind of interesting that the new coaches are are kind of joining them in that universe. Uh, but I do think that a lot of that is, uh, you know, from coach to player uh, and just getting the word out. And, uh, you know, again, there's not a lot of time, uh, you know, creating kind of a, you know, a buzz about, Especially their position group, I think. I think because I think there are going to be changes, and I think the kids want it. You know, want change. Looking forward to it, and this is this gives them more opportunity to kind of, you know, prepare them for that. And you got to like all. Of we. I mean, I think the thing we were hearing. You know, I mean, one of the reasons that the the word got out on these coaches is players were tweeting, but a big even before that, these coaches were calling kids and telling them. You know, it hasn't been announced yet, but I'm your new, you know, offensive line coach, Mike Summers, for example. You know, and, and renewing acquaintances with kids like uh, John Martinez, for example, who he'd recruited when uh, uh, Summers was at uh, Arkansas. And just those kinds of little touches. I think, uh, you know, again, I, I, I talked about the fact that I had thought maybe there was kind of a little bit of a missing sense of family. Uh, you know, USC family and, and kind of pulling all together. And I think, interestingly enough, some of the new guys are kind of renewing that 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 sense of family. So uh, that's kind of interesting. Uh, this is going to – I mean, we don't know what the personality of this team is. I, I will say this. Was it last Tuesday a week? They had probably met with those coaches once. And uh, – so then they had the uh, players only throwing session, which was, you know, I thought the best one of those I'd ever seen uh, in terms of everybody being there, you know, alignment, offense, defense, the whole group and really getting things done. I mean, it was, uh, it was kind of amazing because we had wondered, you know, who's going to be in charge. He'd lost, uh, you know, Barkley or Matt Barkley and TJ McDonald and the guys, you know, Colin Holmes who'd, who'd been basically the leaders for three years. And, uh, and you realize this team's going to have a whole different personality with a whole different bunch of kids, and the and the coaches are going to you know have to be a real part of that, and that's all good news so far. It certainly is, um, and I, I I think we don't really even know 
what we don't know yet. Like there's so much we have to kind of figure out when we get to practice. And I think there's going to be a lot of interesting storylines we haven't even thought of yet just when we get there. And I, I think one of them going in, Dan, is, you know, there's been some guys that are, are no longer on the team. We, we're updating the rosters and everything right now. I updated the scholarship distribution chart. And by my count, uh, heading into 2013, uh, there's only 69 players on scholarship. Uh, USC's allowed to have up to 75. Um, is there any concern there? And I don't know if you've got to go over the chart yourself, Dan. Anything yeah, you saw yeah. that stood yeah, out? Yeah, I thought, I thought you were right on, you know, right on the money with the chart. And I think it's really illustrative. I think what it says is, Okay, there are definitely enough bodies to be a really good football team. As somebody pointed out, Georgia had 67 scholarship players last year. They had a rash of all kinds of off-the-field things going on at Georgia, and they were with, what, one play of making the national championship game. Uh, 69 was more than or approximately, you know, close to as many as USC had on, you know, a couple of those national championships. They didn't have a whole lot more. Certainly didn't have any more playing anyway. Uh, I think it does give USC a chance to uh, – I think the only way they can award walk-on scholarships is the ones who've been in the program two years or more. They don't count as initial grants. So they'll have some flexibility, uh, and they certainly have some guys that are worth it. You know, I, honestly, I think Nathan Gertler, you know, would, would be worth one. Will Andrew is the first guy out there every day, and he was, you know, walk-on scholarship, then walk-on uh, – uh, and a tremendously valuable, uh, you know, guy on this uh, football team, uh, Ryan Dillard, certainly has the talent and, and will get scholarships someday. But He's just only not, been not there this a year. year, yeah. <laughs> He's only been there a year, so he would count as an initial grant. Right. So that might take away one other initial grant that you could give. I, I don't know how they would, how, how they'll look at that one, but they're going to have some room, and they're going to have a few guys who probably really, uh, you know, really deserve, uh, you know, a look as far as a scholarship. But, but I think the numbers look, look correct. And I think it'll, you know, I think, for example, I think there are ways you can practice with the offensive linemen, offensive defensive linemen, where you don't get people hurt, but you really do hit. Where you, where you go full go and you hit, but you do it in, you know, one-on-ones, two-on-twos, half lines, you know, all that kind of stuff. But you don't do it with the way, you know, somebody might get hurt in the open field uh, with, uh, you know, extended uh, uh, first team against first team scrimmaging, for example. Uh, I mean, I think it's, it's, the, it's probably the thing they handled the worst last year, and it's the hardest thing to do, is how do you go at it as if you're not limited by – scholarship uh, numbers and sanctions and all that. The more you talk about it, the more you think, of it, think about it, the more you factor it in, the more you tell your kids, I think it's not very easy then to go out there and, and play with complete abandon and full speed and do all that on Saturday or Friday or Thursday or whenever their games are. <laughs> which, uh, you know, if you go watch them only on television, you're going to be watching them on Thursday and Friday as much as Saturday. But, uh, 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 you know, that's, that was, the mis- I think, the thing that most mishandled. And they, they went to sort of an NFL model uh, that would work with 30-year guy, 30-year-old guys that are, you know, been playing in the league for 10 years. It didn't work at all with, uh, you know, 18, 19, 20-year-olds. It just, it just wasn't the way to go. And it's not the way you can go successfully in college. So 
that'll be interesting to see how, where they get the full speed contact and physicality and aggressiveness and all those things, but without being crazy and, uh, and doing things that, you know, get guys injured. And, and so again, that's part of what I was talking about when I say they're going to have to practice how they practice. And, and, and even for the coaches, I think, you know, this is a learning experience and, uh, We'll see, but uh, if you look at when you look at the depth uh, chart, and you look at the you know there is no depth chart, but you you know the scholarship chart in effect becomes a depth chart, and I like that idea. Uh, but the only way you can really have them compete and make and make a decision and say there is no depth chart, we're going to everybody play for your position. That was one of the problems last year. Is it was not possible to pick out somebody and say, well, he's playing better in practice every day than this guy because they weren't doing anything in practice that you could say, this guy's playing better than that guy, unless it was getting the snap count right or something like that. But, but they just, they have to do enough things, I think, so that you get, you know, a sense of, okay, this kid has really come on. This kid is this, da, 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 da. and that's, uh, that's on the coaches. I'll be real interested, and I'm glad, you know, you've got the new guys to bring in some, you know, some new thinking as to how you do that. So I think I thought, and they'll need to do that too. That's interesting too. The new coaches are going to want to. Uh, I think Kansi Pendergrass said, you know, he hadn't looked almost at all at any old film. He wants to see for himself. So you can't see for yourself unless you actually have him. As Clancy said, he wants them to play the game in practice. So from those that point of view, I think it's really a good thing. Go out there and try to play the game. Figure out how you play the game. And then make your calls based on how they're playing the game, not how they're, you know, going walking through a practice. Yeah, it makes sense. And I, I think some of the things you said there too with you can't think about that there's only sixty nine players on scholarship. You saw how that worked out before. Uh you you mentioned Georgia having only sixty seven last year and still made a good run. If you I mean, certainly it's it's not an ideal situation, but I don't think you can dwell if you dwell on it, it just I, I think it's it's not gonna be good for the team. They're not. They don't put themselves in a good position in practice, and and like we saw that first two weeks of bowl practice when they were just going at it and hitting each other and smashing each other, it seemed to get the guys ready. At least in the middle of the bowl practice, it didn't translate over into the game, obviously. But it seemed to be that's the way you'd want to go about practice. Well, it, it'd be like I think if you're driving, you know, down the, you know, coming in from Orange County like I do, and thinking, well, what if I have a uh, a, a blowout? Oh, maybe I shouldn't be going. 70 maybe i should be going 30 uh, <laughs> every day because you never know blow out at 70 is a lot worse than one at 30 can't do that i'm sorry you wouldn't get there and they'd run over you anyway so <laughs> i mean you, you know it really i mean you can't i you just can't practice like that it was the you know we kept having hope and hope last year that okay they're gonna figure it out they're gonna see it you know they're somehow they're doing something that's making up for what we're not seeing, but uh, you, you just can't. You just got to go for it. I mean, the thing about it is if you slow them down in practice and you practice as if not to get hurt, you automatically, without any question, hurt the team. So there's no point. There's not even any point in thinking about that because that's a guarantee hurt to the team. So you might as well practice full speed and figure out, you know, under, you know, with, with smartly you got to be smart yeah but if you just slow them down and say we're going to be careful you've already hurt the team yeah so 
you don't need any injuries. You can, under that scenario, you don't need any injuries, and you're still going to get hurt. So, and, you know, like last year, if you said, well, what in, you know, what in, I thought they had a really pretty successful year that way, uh, except for the fact that, you know, the, the injury that killed them the most, the, the two injuries that probably cost them, you know, two, three games were uh, Colin Holmes and Syracuse, along with Abe Markowitz on the same day, both in the game, both at the end of the game. Maybe had they not been in the game, had they played the game the way they should have played against Syracuse, they wouldn't have had to be in the game at the end. And uh, and and uh, Barkley, not Barkley, against uh, UCLA. Uh, again, that wasn't anything they could have prevented in practice, other than maybe if they'd have practiced harder yeah. <laughs> and practiced more physically, they wouldn't have had those guys hurt during the game. You know, they would have blocked. Uh, What's his name uh, uh, on the uh, you know oh, bar. on the Barkley blindside? Yeah, bar. They'd have, they'd have, they'd have known you know that UCLA might do that, and they'd have picked it up a little more quickly than not seeing it at all. So there is no upside, I don't think, to trying to slow practice down. No, I agree with you there. Um, well, it's uh, one of the storylines, and it is, happens to go along with this question from David and the OC. So we'll kind of jump in with that. Uh, he says there seems to be a real good feeling. Uh, for the coming football uh, program, especially in the new defense and improved running backs, but where does the QB situation stand? This is an important position, and I would have to say very inexperienced. That's uh, David and the OC. And yet more experienced than UCLA's was last year or Oregon's last year or Stanford's last year or Notre Dame's last year. Yes, he going into this, and this seems, I think, remind me if I'm not wrong, I think those teams had pretty good seasons, if I can recall, right? Uh, <laughs> USC has more experience than UCLA, Notre Dame, Stanford, uh, Oregon going into the season. So uh, if, I'm, if I'm a little dismissive of, of the folks who say, you know, USC doesn't – no, USC didn't have a four-year starter quarterback. How'd that work out, you know? Uh, I just think it is what it is. I think it'll probably in some ways – I mean, I, I think you could make the case that in, in some ways they'll be better off. Uh, and as much as that sounds, you know, like heresy, uh, it'll force them, I think, to do some things that they didn't do last year. It'll force them, I think, to really, really focus on, 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 on the whole idea of the 34 turnovers. I think, you know, there is going to be such a focus. Uh, you know, they finally, you know, toward the end of the year, focused on penalties and got those cleaned up uh, after, you know, being the worst team in the country for, what, eight games? Uh, and so I think you'll see the same thing where the, uh, you know, much of the offense is, you know, the focus is going to be not turning the ball over 34 times, not throwing uh, you know, avoiding sacks and, you know, throwing the ball quickly, uh, you know, to basically one target. Uh, USC, I think, can take advantage of that. I think it'll help them. The competition at quarterback, I think, will be a good thing. I, I get the sense it really will be a competition, that there really will be, um, you know, a chance for, you know, any one of the threes and, you know, any one of the three. And, it, you know, you could say it's an outside shot for a freshman especially a kind of a, you know, physically maturing freshman, um, you know, to be in there. But I think he'll certainly be in the running in terms of the competition part of it. 
And uh, I think, you know, the, the decision will come down to who doesn't turn the ball over, who handles the huddle better, who handles the line of scrimmage better, who moves the down markers. I mean, if, if they do it right with the, uh, you know, basically they've got a veteran offensive line. I mean, I know, you know, they didn't get the job done last year, and yet, uh, you know, they because of Barkley's ability, to, you know, the downside was throwing the ball away. The, the good thing was he didn't get sacked very much. Uh, you know, who could blame him after what <laughs> Stanford game and then what happened in, you know, the UCLA game. But, uh, uh but if the offensive line does the job, and if the big running backs really add, you know, into the end of the mix, that they can control the football. I mean, one of the ways of conserving your defense is keep the ball on offense. Don't give it up. Don't throw it away. Score when you get in the red zone. Do all those things that, uh, you know, that, that lengthen the game in, in ways for the other team's defense. I mean, that's one one real good theory of uh, of how you handle this. So, uh my guess is, if you look at it, I would predict right now they will not turn the ball over 34 times next year. That's a plus. You know, get a veteran team, uh, you know, at the key position, get a better veteran center, veteran quarterback, uh, you know, all-American veteran wide receiver, uh, all of whom are not here. And yet I just get a sense that the focus will be so much on uh, taking care of the football and and the way they're going to play the game, uh, I think, you know, that may not be a concern, that inexperienced quarterback. All right. Um, we also had a question. Uh, this one's from Doug. I want to – I'll play this one for you about, you know, it kind of comes into play with the new running back coach and a new uh, offensive line coach. But uh, here you go. Yeah, this is Doug at the top of the grapevine, Trojan fan since 1962. I'm just wondering if we're going to see some power football as some other players develop. Uh, my next-door neighbor is an Alabama fan. The last two years have been hell. I'm tired of seeing the ball and going to two people on a finesse game. Power football wins in the NFL. Power football wins in the college game as well. So I, I want to see the ball go to uh, some of these other players. Um, just tired of uh, tired of uh, easy to defense, and we're uh, – we're just uh, terrible, and it's it's just uh, it's terrible. It's terrible, and I can't believe how bad it is. Uh, that's about it. Thank you. So terrible. Is what it is. Terrible. From your from your uh, question to Lane's ears, uh, uh, I can agree with you. I think that's the. I mean, the the bringing in the you know having uh, the availability. You know, of a, a 218-pound, uh, uh, he wants to play at Trey Madden, and 215-pound uh, Buck Allen, both who can run, and an offensive line coach whose first words to his kids have been, you know, A, we're going to be physical, we're going to be aggressive, we're going to attack people. Just think of the thought, of, we're going to actually attack people at the line of scrimmage? Who? How about that? Not fool them, not outsmart them, not outcast them. Attack them. How about that? Uh, they do have the man. I think, you know, I think they've got the, the guys up front. You know, they may not have the, you know, all those 330-pounders that Alabama had, but I think they've got some guys that can be pretty darn physical. They just have to be physical. You can't just, you know, like you say, hope they're going to be physical. They've got to be physical. They've got to figure out how to be physical. But I do think power football makes the most sense by far with the new quarterbacks and uh, 
you know, the veteran offensive line returning and the access, you know, they've got four or five guys that could be running tailback. Um, so that, yeah, they could play power football. They have to play power football. They've got to get back. And I know the word, uh, you know, we've heard Lane say it and he said it and he said it, but I think reinforcing it, there's a whole cadre of former USC football players who have passed the word on what the hell is Stanford doing being the big bully in the Pac-12? Where did you, where did that go? You know, what happened to USC? Where did they lose it? Where did they not remember that that was USC football? And I think that word has really kind of returned. I mean, last year they were defending this, you know, preseason number one and trying not to make any mistakes and get anybody hurt and playing in a way that was just the kind of thing that a young coach put in a situation he never expected to be in doesn't have the right answers and didn't seem like a whole lot of people on the staff had the right answers or were listened to. We're not ever going to probably know all the dynamics there. It does seem like they've got the right answers. Power football, I think, is one of them. I mean, first of all, what power football does is it makes you better in the red zone, obviously, better you know, at short yardage or better in third downs, two of the areas that they didn't perform well at all because they were grab-bagging and just hoping that they'd come up with the right play call, Notre Dame game, try to remember that, throw it out of your head if you can, I guess. Uh, and then uh, – so much, you know, if you've been watching USC football, uh, so much of the of the play of the uh, passing game that has really been important for USC has come in play action, coming off play action. If you watch, if you ever, you know, want to go on and put that, you know, YouTube highlights, the uh, three minutes and three and a half minutes of the uh, USC Oklahoma game, and Oklahoma had three or four guys that got drafted in the NFL, a couple All Americans in their secondary. And if you just watch nothing else, watch their secondary, having no matter what was going on in the game, no matter what had just happened, they were taking one or two big steps forward. They, you know, when you got Lindell White and Reggie Bush, you have to defend the run. I don't care. And, of course, you know, as soon as they took one or two steps, the next thing you saw is, you know, receivers, tight ends, you know, wide receivers, you name it, running by them. I mean, they had no chance. If you had to try to defend that team and knew no matter what, you better be ready to come up and stop the run, it changes everything about the passing game. I mean, think about last year. Had, you know, two years ago, for example, when you had uh, Marquise as a freshman and Robert as a sophomore, what was the secret there? A big part of it was USC could hammer the ball. Even, you know, Mark Tyler maybe, you know, with, with all his limitations, was still a 220-pound, you know, uh, hammer that could could come and run it at you, and so could Chris McNeil. Obviously, with you know Matt Khalil and Red Ellison at the point of attack, they could run the football. You had to respect the run first, and look what that did. I mean, you had Robert and, and Marquise were just you know flying in the tight ends. Almost all of that went away. You know, Marquise was was available last year on his own individual efforts with Matt, but that was about it because people didn't have to respect the run. They didn't, they did not believe USC watching USC on film. You had to believe USC knew they couldn't, they couldn't run the ball when they had to. So 
teams took away, you know, the passing game, you know, mostly the intermediate because they didn't think, you know, USC uh, trusted, uh, the, you know, the pass blocking now. So it wasn't very much of a challenge to stop USC last year. And, and you know, and teams, you know, as the year went on, where the year before USC had really improved and gotten better and, and been able to take a little bit of this and a little of that and add as the season went on, this year, last year, they got worse because teams really took away the few things USC was trying to do and left them with nothing and said, well, if they're going to try to run the ball like Notre Dame at the, you know, at the goal line, yeah, we'll just stuff them. And uh, you've got to be able to do that first. I think you know, we'll see what, what the playbook looks like. But uh, one would think that's the direction, you know, you know take Alabama's playbook and <laughs> start from there and then say, well, wait a minute, if we can do that, we also have Marquise Lee and Nelson Aguilar and two really good tight ends. I mean, we, this is what you go watch the throwing sessions and when they're all there and you watch Randall Telfer and Xavier Grimmel running down the field and catching the football, you just want to bang your head and think, ah, that, you know. When are we going to get to see that again? Um, and we will get to see it if they can run the football. That's so. Uh, we'll pass that along. Yeah. <laughs> to Lane. Terrible, terrible, terrible. I think we have. I think we actually may have already passed that along. Probably. <laughs> along yeah. A few times. <laughs> Um, well, uh, so we talked about the offense a little bit. Maybe some of the the storylines on defense. What you think uh, USC fans can expect? Because they will be able to watch. You can the first two hundred fans. At practice, can watch from Dado Field um, Tuesdays and Thursdays at uh, four o'clock. So the first two hundred people get there. You can watch from up above a Dado Field, look down below onto Howard Jones Field, and check the team out practicing. But what what are some of the storylines? I guess you'd say, Dan, from. Uh, from well, I mean, defense? I do just like the fact that uh, you know, just what you've heard from Clancy. Obviously, we liked you know some of the things we used to see them being able to do at Cal and. Uh, you know, and, and, and certainly his NFL history of, of making guys better than they'd played before he was there. I mean, there's no question. You look at his track record. And guys that were kind of average, uh, especially in the secondary guys, uh, just got better, Got you know, became pro bowlers. And, you know, uh, he, he's got a track record. And what he does is he tries to make it a player-centered uh, defense. It's not something – you know, that he developed in 25 years in the NFL with really difficult concepts and where you need 40 hours a week to coach him, and, and a lot of it is reacting and, you know, all that kind of stuff. He's basically a guy that says, we're going to figure out what you can do best and what you can do best, especially against this team we're playing. And is that going to be a three-man front, a four-man front, a five-man front? He likes to say you're going to anchor it around the 52. But – uh the idea that, you know, teams won't know whether, you know, Devon Kennard's going to have his hand on the ground or standing up uh, or Morgan Breslin or how they're going to, you know, be configured. Uh, the idea that maybe, you know, it looks like Deion Bailey's going to be back with the safeties where, you know, they could certainly use a, uh, you know, he's down to 195 pounds. He looks like a safety. Uh, I think, uh, you know, the idea that they're going to be aggressive and disruptive and instead of, allowing teams to run their routes and then try to react or keep them from breaking them loose and, you know, going, you know, getting extra yards and all that, trying to come up and make a tackle. I mean, I just saw the uh, 
God, last night I was watching the Pac-12 Network and they had the uh, top plays of the year. And instead of one play for Kenyon Barner, they ran like 14 plays from the USC game. <laughs> and watching that USC quote-unquote defense, the way they were you know, configured and standing around and the missed tackles and the bad angles and the, 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 the bad idea that was you know, the, uh, the Oregon defense, uh, you just thought these kids had no chance last year. They had no chance. Now, you know, Clancy says, I want to play on the other, uh, on the opponent's side of the line of scrimmage. And I'm thinking, wow, what a novel idea. Instead of playing 10 yards down the field, giving them a running shot at you, there were USC guys in that game, hadn't moved when that, uh, what's in that long kid, that big tackle, ran right over them. I mean, they got blocked in every way you could get blocked because they were standing, it looked like tackling dummies. I mean, basically, uh, in, un, you know, unmoving, tackling dummies. It's just that was whatever anybody was trying to figure out to do. If you just said, here are the ten worst things you could do to play <laughs> Oregon, they did all ten of them. I mean, it was just – it's, it, it's almost impossible to watch those, uh, those Pac-12 highlights when they, they throw a half-hour show in with the ten best plays, and you just know you're going to see USC because – either the 10 best comebacks or the 10 best plays of the year on offense or whatever, they're against USC. I mean, USC is going to be there. Uh, but it's hard to watch. I mean, hard to watch guys that are pretty good football players just getting, getting blocked the way they were. I mean, they weren't in position to do anything. So just the idea of, of getting them moving, I mean, they're so excited. And it's, I think the good thing is last year the one area the, that did the best on defense was the area they screwed around with the least, was the um, defensive line. Because yeah. they had the young guys there. And they basically just said, okay, we're not going to try to put too much into their heads. Just play football, you guys. Play football, play football. And that really, for much of the year, until fi- people figured out a little bit, that worked pretty darn well. Well, now you've got a secondary that's going to be guys that haven't you know, started and haven't played a lot, but with some real talent. Uh, the ideal thing, I think, is going to be don't put too much in their heads. Rely on their athleticism, their aggressiveness. Uh, you know, play a lot of man. Play a lot of man, and they're going to. And just, you know, and just with the idea that, oh, what are you going to do on third and long? What if they break? Well, here's the thing. If you do it right up front, and do it right with the, the linebackers, do it right on all the aggressive stuff with the athletes USC's got, uh, they aren't going to have enough time to, you know, beat you deep if you do it right. And I think, you know, Coach Orgeron is so excited because he says, basically, I've got five defensive linemen now. You know, I've got Devon Kennard and Morgan Breslin, Leonard Williams, um, George Yuko, and, you know, Antoine Woods slash, uh, you know, uh, Kenny Bigelow, however you want to, you know, he likes the idea of having five defensive linemen who are, who are athletes. And I think – one of the things we've noticed a little bit is how impressed we all were with Morgan Breslin last year and his athleticism, his speed, his quickness, his whatever. And when you watch Morgan Breslin and Devon Kennard out there, you realize Devon's a little bigger, a little older, a little more experienced, and probably faster. And you think, you know, that's probably a pretty good combination <laughs> if you use them properly. Now, you don't necessarily 
one Morgan Breslin, you know, playing, uh, you know, Rover and, uh, you know, dropping off the line of scrimmage all the time. But, you, say, you know, you have a couple of guys and you say, this is what they do really well. Well, let's let them do it really well and make that work. You have to make it work. And, and, and not, we're not going to outsmart you. We'll just try to come after you and not let you play. Not let you. What if, for example, I know after the UCLA game, the one comment was, wow, that kid, that Huntley kid, who thought he could keep making all those passes? Wow, that's a hard pass. And he just made it every one of those third downs. Yeah. Could he have made that pass on the ground? No. <laughs> but he was just standing there. Or well, under pressure. Not even sack, but just under a little bit of pressure at least. Yeah, just with a hand in his face. No hand in his face. And he's just standing there. Yeah, okay, so it's that's not easy to throw third and 16 and throw it right on the money. Unless, of course, A, no pressure. B, no defender in the area. Well, yeah, yeah. No, it wasn't a surprise. No, you can do that. That's what you, you know, that changes the whole game. If Brett Huntley running for his life is a whole different quarterback than standing back there and just trying to find his six foot eight tight end who, you know, takes four seconds to get down to the, you know, the first down marker <laughs> and turn around and say, here, throw me the ball. Here I am. Yeah, all right. <laughs> <laughs> so hopefully that doesn't happen much anymore. I mean, really, you want to see, you know, Kevon Kennard and Morgan Breslin say, you know, well, that's me to Brett Hundley. You know, that, that would be a nice thing. I think they're going to do that a lot more. I do I think, think so, are. too. I do. Well, Dan, hey, one more quick one before we let you go. I know we're going a little long in the segment, but this is from Jeff Smith and Silmar. He says, given Chad Wheeler's background as a defensive end in high school and USC's need on the defensive line, do you foresee Lane moving Wheeler to the defensive side of the ball. And he also wants to know the health status of uh, Cody Temple. I think he could be a valuable run stopper this season. I think he actually could. Uh, I think, I mean, he's been out there mixing it up a little bit more, and he is a big, you know, he's got all the all the skills and the size and the, you know, kind of explosive strength that, you know, a nose, you want a guy on the nose, uh, you know, to have. He, he does look, he has a little bit of that, you know, Southeastern Conference look about him. Uh, so, uh but, you know, from Bakersfield, I guess what's no difference, you know. I mean, uh, very, very similar. Uh, uh, Wheeler, I don't, you know, I think that's where they've got to make some really smart calls when you got, you know, the 69 scholarships. You figure out, well, if this kid, you know, can really help us here, well, then, you know, stays at offensive tackle. If he can help us on defense. I mean, I think the one even more so, and he's 6'7", but I'm looking at, at 6'9", Zach Banner as a potential, and I know as people think you're crazy, but he moves really well. He's very aggressive. He's got long, strong arms, big hands. Uh, if, you know, he ends up at 6'9", again, he's at the absolute outer limit of anybody who's ever been successful as an offensive lineman. And if he's a guy who plays just maybe a little bit high, he'd been a basketball player and all that, uh, on offense, there are, because of his size and his frame and his length and his strength and his activity, who knows? Could, could a guy like that be a defensive end in this system? You know, could you, I mean, you've probably seen more guys in the NFL with that kind of size who've made it on defense 
you know, again, fairly rare, but more on, on defense and offense. So I think that's a good question. I think it's the kind of thinking that USC has to do where they're not locked into, you know, you are what you are what you are, and we're not even going to think about it. I think uh, thinking about one of, a move like that, uh, especially for next year, might be really the way to go, but preparing for it this year. But uh, good, good thought. I, I hope they, they do a lot of that kind of thinking in terms of where's the best place for this guy. All right, Dan. Well, thanks uh, for all the information there. We'll look forward to seeing you out at practice tomorrow. Again, USC fans, you can come out there and check it out yourself if you want to, the first 200 fans. So we'll let you know. We'll report on how many fans are showing up and what the experience is like. We haven't seen fans out there for a couple of years, so it should be interesting. But thanks again, Dan. Yeah, and I think what we need to do is find out where do they check in. I'm guessing at the Dado uh, field, um, but I'm not sure which gate. You know, there are a couple of different, you know, ways to, to get in there. Uh, uh, I'm guessing they'll take them up through the baseball, the regular baseball field and bring them back over there, but I'm not 100% sure. We ought to try to find that out for you today so people know where. I'm guessing they're going to have them line up uh, and uh, count off. So get there early. Yeah, get there early and check it out. We'll, we'll report back, and all of it will be on uscfootball.com. So check there. Check on the message boards. We'll let everyone know. But thanks again, Dan, and everyone else. We'll be back in 30 seconds talking to Gerard Martinez about USC football recruiting. Meet us on the other side of the break for more of the Peristyle Podcast. Tickets, tickets, tickets. SC Tickets is your concert, sports, and theater ticket source. We have the tickets you need to any event worldwide. Football tickets are now available. Call SC Tickets now at 1-800-888-7287, 1-800-888-7287, that's 1-800-888-7287, or visit us on the web at sctickets.com. SC Tickets, concert, sports, and theater. We now return to the Peristyle Podcast and your host, Ryan Abraham. We are back here on the Peristyle podcast talking with uscfootball.com national recruiting analyst gerard martinez who's still trying to get over what was kind of a crazy signing day for usc you, you recovered yet gerard how, how you feeling uh yeah i know um i, I probably haven't recovered fully uh we're gonna <laughs> go right into spring football and hopefully you know actual football will take some of our minds off of uh the crazy recruiting process at the end of last year it was a little crazy, uh, certainly. Uh, it wasn't. It was. I guess it was a. Uh, the work is different because it was a smaller class than what we normally see. Um, but I guess now well, it, I, was, it was at eighteen at one point. Actually, it was. eighteen going on nineteen, and people were talking about it being a class of twenty, and then it obviously didn't end up being uh, yeah. that much. We told people all along that was not going to happen. We even knew eighteen, and people were like, "Well." They have 18 now. What does that mean? I'm like, well, it means you have to get rid of one because you can't can only sign 17. Um, and they try. I think that's what they tried to sign. Obviously, they tried to sign 17, and that didn't quite uh, work out. There ended up getting 12 new ones plus Darius Rogers, who was a holdover from the class of 2012. So a total of 13, and seven of them are already there. And we're going to get to see them starting tomorrow at spring football, Gerard. Yeah, and that's that's going to be a big deal, being able to see who of those newcomers is going to be able to make an immediate impact. Yeah, I'm not sure uh, who's going to 
you know, who's going to shine? I, I mean, there's some guys that we think uh, have a real chance, like a Kenny Bigelow or Sual Cravens, of course, uh, Max Brown. Uh, but there's a lot of guys. I mean, all these guys are very talented. Uh, I think they all have a shot. And, and in spring is usually a time where you get to see some of these younger guys. And I'm sure the coaches would love to see what these guys can do. They'll throw them out there and uh, put them in some different situations. Yeah, and the guys come in uh, at various positions of need. I mean, you're talking about so Cravens coming in at safety. You've got uh, Leon McQuay the third who's coming in. He's going to actually play a little bit of cornerback uh, to start out spring ball, but another guy that can play some safety. Um, you've got Max Brown there who's obviously coming in to take that starting quarterback job uh, that was left over from Matt Barkley. So you're going to have uh, you know another quarterback derby, which we haven't had in a very, 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 very long time at USC because Matt Barkley was a four-year starter. So um, there's definitely some positions there that uh, are up for grabs. We're going to see if Justin Davis can able to make, you know, kind of a, a, a splash there at running back. You know, he's kind of that bigger back that uh, USC hasn't had for a while, and we're also going to be able to see Trey Madden come back. He's not going to do much contact. We're not sure how many, you know, drills he's going to be able to participate in in spring ball, uh, but it'll be interesting just to see how he looks out there uh, because he really is – you know, one of those guys that um, I think going down last year really, really hurt USC's offense and their ability to move the ball on third and short. Um, well, you know, people were asking for kind of a breakdown of what was going on. I mean, as far as the recruiting class goes, um, you know, we've talked a lot about these guys. They wanted to have Lanny Julius on. We're still trying to, to, to get that together. He's a hard guy to track down <laughs> a lot of times. If you know Lanny, he's kind of eccentric. Um but, you know, a cool guy. So we'll definitely still try to do that. Uh, was there anyone in particular, Gerard, that you wanted to kind of point out, maybe guys that are that are in earlier, someone that – something that people don't know about one of these guys or something that uh, – a little anecdote or something that you could share uh, to kind of – about this, uh, well, you know, finishing up the class of 2013? Uh, you know, there's always a lot of little stories and backgrounds to, to all these kids. I, I just think uh, one of the more interesting ones – you know, at this point, looking at the recruiting process for 2013 in the rearview mirror uh, was definitely, you know, Khalil Rogers. I think that was a guy that um, for a while USC seemed to be going back and forth on. And, uh, you know, obviously Kenny Bigelow was already committed. So they knew about Khalil Rogers. Khalil Rogers had come in on a couple of unofficial visits with Kenny Bigelow and David Sills, the 2015 quarterback that's committed already uh, from uh, Elkton uh, Eastern Christian High School uh, in uh, Maryland which they were originally Red Lion High School in Delaware. So those guys had been out to USC unofficially a few times, and USC had seen Khalil Rogers, and there just didn't seem to be a whole lot of interest. But Khalil Rogers was one of those guys that went down to various camps and just dominated during the process. And, um, you know, we were at uh, the Atlanta um, five-star challenge for rivals and, and he was there and, and there was, you know, a, a bevy of, of great players there. And we were talking to him and he was saying, you know, USC's kind of come in and now they're talking like maybe, you know, they want to offer me a scholarship, but I'm not really sure. And, uh, I remember us being down there and he dominated, uh, that camp, you know, I mean, he was calling people out. He did a really good job against a lot of the best players. There uh, was one of those guys that called out Carl Lawson, even though Carl Lawson was a really more of a defensive end. He's like, Hey, you know, whatever Carl Lawson's kicking everybody's butt. I want to go out there and block Carl Lawson. And so he was really, really good at the five-star challenge. And um, all of a sudden it seemed like something had changed where he says, you know, okay, I, I, I have a scholarship offer from USC. Now I talked to him recently 
and I was going to go out there for the Rising Stars camp, but my coach just called me and let me know that I have to do more summer school now. So it was all of a sudden one of those things where we're going, well, dang, man, the kid just dominated the camp. He finally gets his offer as he's leaving the camp. But you figure, you know, that's not really going to be a solidified thing until he can go to Rising Stars and really kind of show what he could do in person to the coaches, and then you can't do it. That, that opportunity was kind of – just stolen right away from him at the last minute. So now we're going, well, shoot, maybe USC is not going to really go through with the offer. You know, what, how does that, uh, how does that play? There's all these different things that go, you know, on. And um, really, I think the five-star challenge, once that video started hitting and people started talking about what he did, it kind of became his rising stars camp, so to speak. I think that, you know, against that level of competition, the coaches felt comfortable with him and felt like they could go through with him. And and obviously, like I said before, and, uh, you know, I talked to Khalil about this recently because a lot of people took it the wrong way, and they, you know, they get in his ear and say, oh, you know, Gerard Martinez told you this and Gerard Martinez told you that. I posted on the board that, you know, one of the one of the – one of the main things that, that helped Khalil was just that he had been put on the map a little bit by Kenny. You know, Kenny Bigelow being a guy that was already committed to USC and was, you know, calling USC every other day saying, you've got to offer my teammate Khalil Rogers. You've got to offer him. He's a great player. I mean, that helped Khalil. It's not because, you know, Kenny Bigelow uh, got Khalil an offer because Kenny Bigelow was there. It's just because Kenny Bigelow was his biggest fan and was a guy that was really, really pushing everything that he did and letting people know back at USC, you know, this guy just dominated a great camp against a bunch of great players. And I think that was something that definitely uh, it, it helped Khalil. It helped Khalil that, you know, he got as much exposure at those camps as he did. Uh, but the one thing that's always, you know, and I, I try to point out with a lot of these guys, because especially with Khalil, this was the, one of the biggest things. He earned that scholarship on the field. You know, Kenny Bigelow could have said whatever he was going to say and could have talked Khalil Rogers up all day long. That was only going to take it so far. At the end of the day, Khalil had to go out there and he had to dominate those camps. He had to go to Nike and dominate the Nike camp. He had to go to the five-star challenge and dominate that camp. Because if he wouldn't have gotten that five-star challenge and then he wouldn't have been able to go to Rising Stars, we may not be talking about Khalil Rogers right now. You know, we're talking about a guy who's 6'3", about 300 pounds. That's not the prototypical USC uh, offensive lineman. USC likes to go after those taller, lankier guys that are a little more athletic uh, from a from a from a range standpoint. You know, those guys that can kind of play outside and play inside. And what we've seen with USC is that it's kind of hurt them because the interior linemen that they have. You know, last year they got crushed. I mean, there's just various games, whether you're looking at Stanford, whether you're looking at, uh, you know, the Notre Dame game on that goal line. They just don't have guys that really seem to have power, that have aggressiveness, that are getting off the ball hard. And they've got guys that, you know, have played in the interior. They've even got some guys that have played the interior that are not playing out there at tackle. So it's one of those things where, you know, that's not the prototypical guy that USC has looked at in the past, you know, 6'3", 300 pounds, uh, really more sawed off and explosive and, and more of a straight line guy that's going to mic block you and, you know, get behind the power play and just wash you out uh, with, with just quickness and aggressiveness and toughness. And that's what Clear Rogers brings to the table. So it's one of those funny things that you look at it on paper and go, well, you know, is that he going to offer a guy like this? Is They don't have a lot of guys like this on the, on the scholarship uh, roster. And then you watch, you know, what he does and you see him dominate. And then you go and see what USC didn't do last year on the offensive line. And it's one of those things in hindsight, it all really came around. He ends up being one of those guys that could really, 
you know, sort of change the culture maybe on the offensive line for USC. And we're going to see what happens. He, unfortunately, is not going to be able to be in uh, as an early enrollee, so we're going to have to wait to see what he does during the fall. Uh, but one of those things that, you know, that's the guy that went out there and proved it. He took that scholarship offer as much as anything. You know, he took it from other guys because there was, a, you know, other guys that were out there like Sean Harlow, Thomas Oser, you know, some local kids, some kids back east, you know, the bigger 6'6", 300-pound kids. Well, you know what, Khalil Rogers took that scholarship offer from them and throughout the process was solid. You know, he really never wavered. There was a lot of jokes on Twitter about Alabama and all these other schools coming in after them. And trust me, they had those scholarship offers. I mean, they could have gone a lot of other places, Khalil Rogers and Kenny Bigelow, but both those guys were steadfast. And, you know, Khalil Rogers, bam, only visit he took, USC. And uh, I think that says a lot, too. He really wanted to be at USC. And when you have to persuade players – so much during the process after they've committed, hey, this is really where you want to be here. I mean, your original decision was the right decision. You almost, if you get those guys in, I mean, you know, they really want to be there or, or did you have to persuade them to be there? You really want guys that are passionate about the program and see the program for its positives. And again, Clear Rogers, that guy. So it's one of those things that, you know, at that point in the summer, it looked like it wasn't going to happen. It looked like, you know, fate had kind of turned on us. And then, bam, you know, as, uh, as, uh, you know, he was done with the, the, the five-star challenge and went back home. It was just a matter of, you know, after that scholarship offer came, you know, a couple of weeks and bam, he jumped on top of it. And uh, the weirdest thing, he committed on the same day as uh, Eddie Vanderdose. And I believe there was another commitment. Uh, I think Nico Fala committed early on that day. So you had the two offensive linemen and Eddie Vanderdose uh, committing all on the same day. That was uh, that was definitely a long day for everybody. Okay, Jerry. Well, looking forward to the class of 2014. We had a question from Bruce. Uh, he quote unquote Nostradamus uh, from Cupertino, and uh, he wants to know. I'd hope there's some lessons in new recruiting strategies and tactics were learned uh, following the signing day on, in February. I'd like to know, what should those recruiting lessons be for next year? What should or could they do differently regarding the class of 2014 in order to avert or at least minimize similar recruiting carnage from occurring next year? Not have 18 verbal commitments in July. That would be step number one, because if you're going to have 18 verbal commitments in July – you're going to have various decommitments. That is just going to happen. Um, that's the way the game is nowadays. I think you could win a national championship, and you could still see decommitments. Uh, USC, obviously, when you have a 7-6 season, you're going to see even more just because of the momentum. And really, I think more than anything, it's dependent on what the head coaching situation is in the, in the coaching staff situation in general. If all of a sudden the coaching staff ends up on the hot seat, uh, you know, following that bad season, then you're going to get, you know, a lot of uncertainty. And if you recruit out of state, that kills your out of state recruiting. Uncertainty is just, it's, it's the death rattle <laughs> for, uh, for out of state recruiting. You know, when you start losing games and people start questioning, okay, are these coaches going to be at that school anymore? You can just hear it. And uh, I think for USC, if they want to maintain a national presence and they seem just completely determined determined to be able to go out to the southeast and grab some guys and then kind of have some guys out here locally that they seal up a little earlier um you know usc for years what they had done strategically is you know they had their offers back east they had their quote-unquote first round picks and then they would you know come back here 
during the camps and during, you know, may evaluation and get, you know, maybe six, seven verbal commitments and have their guys back east that they liked and their guys back east that maybe come out and they go to Rising Stars camp or what have you, you know, a guy like Keith Rivers, and they kind of keep him on ice there, you know, for the rest of the year until you get into that December, January, and then you have that kid commit at that point. And instead of really putting the target on his back and saying, hey, you know what, he's an SC Trojan, in July, and then you have all those SEC schools kind of stirring and, and, and you know circling a little bit, uh, like uh, like buzzards at a, at a kill. Um, you know, everybody's looking to come in on you, negatively recruit, and again, you know, the season just helps that. You know, it just fuels that fire of negative recruiting and what's going to happen with Lane Kiffin and what's going to happen with this coach and that coach. And we heard that all through basically going in from the end of October into November already. You know, they lose to Oregon the way they lost. You already started to hear the rumors, okay, Monty Kiffin's going to be fired. And then that means the defensive coaches are going to be fired because they're going to bring in a new defensive coordinator. So that already started things. You know, Ed Erdron was leaving. We heard that several times as we started getting closer into the December. So it's one of those things that you really cannot have that amount of verbal commitments I think that early, quite frankly, if you're recruiting nationally just in general, I don't think you should have that many. I, I, you just can't leave that many out-of-state recruits dangling out there for everybody and their brother to take shots at. Um, you got to be a little more coy. And USC's done that before. It's not like Lane Kiffin you know, himself has not employed that strategy at USC. You know, Nelson Aguilar was a guy that was committed to USC for the longest time, and he was silent. He just kind of stayed low. You didn't really hear much about him doing a lot of interviews. And they went through the process, and then they kind of sprang it in on January, and everybody goes, oh, wow, USC has a real shot at Nelson Aguilar. You know, before that point, everybody was saying, oh, he's going to go to Florida State, he's going to go to Florida, uh, he's going to stay local, he's not going to go that far, he's not going to leave his family, and then boom, bang, boom, he does. And so the people that were following that, commi- that recruitment you know, throughout kind of knew USC had a good shot at Nelson Aguilar. Uh, it was just kind of, I think, the other people out there that, that didn't have that, that real understanding of what was going on and, and the fact that he had unofficially visited USC and that there was connections between Monty Kiffin and his head coach there at his high school. Uh, so it was one of those things that, you know, USC kind of almost did it even in this class, which is funny because, you know, they had all those out-of-state commitments that ended up being decommitments, which – you know, that word decommitment isn't even, isn't even a word. I think that's another thing. When we're talking about reporting on the recruiting process, the lingo that the industry is using, uh, the recruiting publications, has to be changed a little bit. You know, a commitment is a commitment. If you're committing to something, then you can't decommit. That just doesn't make any sense. So, you know, all of a sudden we've come up with this word decommitment to augment the lack of commitment in these kids and what they're actually following through and doing with their actions. So we kind of have to take a little bit of step back with that. But with that 2013 class, USC came in really late on Matthew Thomas, the five-star linebacker recruit from Miami. They didn't really start recruiting him hard until kind of the last, I don't know, three, two, three months maybe of the recruiting process. I mean, he's a guy that heard from USC. He got a scholarship offer early. But USC wasn't recruiting him real hard. They weren't really on top of him. They weren't, you know, getting an unofficial visit from him, and they didn't get this official visit until, um, uh, you know, one of the last weekends that USC brought kids in. USC was a real afterthought in everybody's mind for Matthew Thomas. Everybody thought, okay, he's going to Florida State. Okay, now that uh, James Cooley has gone to Miami, who was recruiting him at Florida State and is, uh, you know, a big uh, Miami-Dade guy, he's going to go to Miami now and stay local. 
And then you had Alabama in there as well. So you're, everybody was talking about all the Southeast schools on him. And yeah, USC, at the point where they had 18 uh, commitments, wasn't even a part of the conversation. I mean, we saw him at the opening look real good. I think I took one photo of the kid because he was a guy that just really wasn't on USC's radar. He wasn't talking about going and taking an official visit to USC after he's got his offer. Uh, he just There wasn't a lot of talk. So USC goes through that process, and literally with two months left, they go in on an in-home visit. T. Martin starts recruiting Matthew Thomas, and all of a sudden the kid's like, you know what, I'd like to take a visit to USC. And that, you know, that, that's, that's kind of an idea. Uh, yeah, okay, cool. I'll go to you know, Alabama. You know, I've been to Miami a bunch of times. I'm going to go see Florida State and Georgia, and that'll, that'll be my thing. I'll go out to USC. So he goes out to USC, and all of a sudden you get this vibe, like, well, the kid's actually from Miami. You know, he's kind of a, a, a kid that's used to the city, faster pace. He loves USC. He loves the opportunity he's going to have at USC to play right away at USC. He wants to go to USC. Now, our USC made the biggest issue, and it's really not their fault because you can only do so much. You can, you know, only lead a horse to water. You can't make them drink. You didn't get the mom or any of the family out on that official visit with Matthew Thomas, and that ended up biting USC in the ass on signing day because the kid was ready to go, you know, telling everybody he's going to USC. Even the, the coaches there uh, at his high school, Booker T, were saying, yeah, he's going to USC. The, the, the day of, mom says, look, it, I'm not signing that letter of intent for USC. I've never seen USC. I don't want you going across the country to USC. You know, none of your family has been uh, around USC. We've never seen the city. It was just no familiarity with it. So she was not going to sign that letter of intent to USC. He ends up going to Florida State. But you look at how the process went, and for the kid himself, you know, he wasn't out there as a USC commit from July. And so that was one of those things I think really helped USC. You had Miami and Florida State and Georgia to some extent all infighting, going after each other, thinking, well, I don't want to play against that guy, so screw him. If he's not going to come here, then we're going to badmouth you know, Florida State. And Florida State's thinking, well, he's going to go to Miami if he doesn't go to Florida State, so let's badmouth Miami. And so you get that kind of going back and forth. You didn't have that with Jalen Ramsey. You didn't have that with Tarodney Prevo. You didn't have that with Jason Hatcher. The only team, the only school that those other schools in that area were bad-mouthing were USC at that point because they wanted to dislodge that commitment. And then once that kid starts to get back into the, you know, the, the I'm looking at all my options type uh, scenario and he's taking visits, then you start recruiting them for your own school. And that's basically how it went down. So I think strategically, USC's definitely got to pump the brakes when it comes to the early commitments. Um, at this year, really, it's going to help them to do that regardless because a, you don't have all that momentum and hype that USC was feeding off of last offseason. You know, you had that preseason number one ranking, Matt Barkley coming back, Heisman Trophy candidate. All that stuff played in, I think, with some of those recruits, and probably in a bad way because those are the recruits that were buying hype, and they were more about the hype than they really were about the university. Uh, they were more about, oh, it's the number one team in the nation. You know, we heard that a couple times from guys. Trotty Prevo said that a couple times. Well, they're the number one team in the nation, and they've got the number one recruiting class in the nation. Those kids just want to get part of that. You know, they want to be at the opening. They want to be at the five-star challenge, and there's eight, nine USC guys there, and they're walking around their SC gear like, oh, yeah, we're number one. They, they buy into that, and that's nothing to do with the university. That has nothing to do with how hard you're going to play for USC or how good you are or how well you fit in at USC. That's just hype. So USC used that a little bit last year. This year, obviously, they don't have it. They've been stripped of it. Everybody's looking at USC going, well, can they win, you know, eight games? Can they win nine games? And so you're not going to get that level of recruit 
from the hype. So why even try to go that way? You know, you, I think you want to get those solid guys. The guys that you're going to commit, get committed to USC now are probably going to be a little more solid because they're down and there's not, you know, a lot of hype about them and everybody's not saying good things about them. So they're really looking at the university more. And, you know, we're going to see how the season goes. If USC gains momentum and they start winning games, trust me, Lane Kiffin and the coaching staff will recruit very, very well. You know, they'll, they'll, they'll be, hey, look at the, the program's back on the upswing. Yeah, we had that hiccup last year, but we learned from it. Coaching staff is solid. We're solid. We just won a bunch of games. Lane Kiffin's going to get an extension. Let's move forward. If it doesn't happen, if they don't win those games and they struggle, then you're going to have a new head coach come in. And you always see kind of that, that, that new energy, that new enthusiasm, that, that rekindled interest in the fan base and everybody else when you bring a new coach in. And if it's a guy that's a big-time guy, which USC can afford, and they can afford big-time assistant coaches, then you're going to have a good recruiting class because those guys are going to be out there selling playing time. And there's plenty of playing time to be had, especially coming away from sanctions. So everybody's going to be excited about that. Everybody's going to be excited about the new dynasty at USC and creating something new at USC when everybody else has just kind of treaded on the past success of Pete Carroll and those 2004, 2005 teams. So I think overall the strategy has to be to kind of wait a little bit and you kind of have to wait for that point. Everything that's happening right now is happening. There's things that are going on within the class that are, you know, you're trying to shape and you're trying to kind of put yourself, I think, uh, if you're Lane Kiffin, in that position for when you make that run and you have to make that run, you, you, you have those guys that you have contact with. They know about you. It's not like, oh, all of a sudden USC's recruiting me. But I think it's better, like I said, to just lay low. Just have those guys recruited. You know, there's kids now that went to junior day that they're upset because they didn't get those offers. Trust me, when we get in November and December, those kids are going to forget about that stuff. It's become such a, you know, what have you done for me lately with the recruiting process with top kids. They're able to just come in and kind of lay low, start to win games. You're going to start to see that interest rekindle. And, you know, guys like Dwight Williams, the 2014 linebacker from Sarah, who was upset because he didn't get a scholarship offer and felt like he didn't get enough love at USC Junior Day, he gets the love then. He's kind of in USC. There's no, <laughs> I'm eliminating USC. You know, we've even seen kids eliminate USC uh, from contention and then bring USC back up because USC is winning. It's the end of the year. Everybody wants to visit Los Angeles. It's a great place to be, even if you're a local kid, to visit and be around, you know, that kind of environment. And USC recruits really well. It's a good recruiting staff, uh, regardless even of the decommitments they had last year. It's still coaching staff that can recruit. So it's one of those things that that's how you change the strategy, and that's kind of how I see the strategy changing. I think you're going to see, you know, some of those early enrollee guys, they're going to have to get those guys on track here pretty, you know, pretty soon you get into May, get into, you know, the, the, the summer. Those guys have to take the right courses. So USC, they got to be locked in on those guys already. And, you, you know, those are the guys that they're going to go all in on trying to make sure that they're set up for the early enrollment. But that you've got five of those guys. So you get five, maybe six of those guys, have a little redundancy there just in case somebody doesn't make it. And then, boom, you know, you, you, you pretty much have to go through the season, play the season, you know, bring your kids in on those unofficial visits locally. You might want to pepper in maybe some more official visits during the season. That's something that USC the last two years has not done. They had one official visitor during the season the last two years. And that was Noir Davis who went to Stanford. Maybe, you know, you could bring in a couple more kids during the year for big games. You don't want to overdo it. You don't want to go the way of Notre Dame that, you know, brings in 26 kids and you can get your ass handed to you by USC at home. That just does not look good. That's just a, you know, big fail 
Oregon kind of did the same thing with LeBron James and all those all those basketball recruits that they brought in, and uh, or all the all the all the football recruits they brought in for you know in front of the basketball players and made that like this big thing. And oh yeah, oh, LeBron James comes here all the time and he vacations here in Eugene, Oregon, and this whole thing they made it look like, and you know the whole Nike thing, and then they lose to USC at home. Like that never fails <laughs> when you have a big recruiting weekend. It never fails that you're probably going to be so distracted as a coaching staff trying to, you know, handle all these kids that you're going to go out in the football field and forget to play a game. So <laughs> you want to stay away from that. You want to stay away from that. But, you know, bringing in a couple kids here and there that are your priority kids is not a bad thing. I mean, you can kind of, you know, set the scene a little bit with those kids. And early in the season, like I said, nobody's going to be looking at USC to get a lot of those out-of-state kids. You know, everybody's going to say, well, USC's terrible. They don't have a shot at any of those kids. And they're really going to look at them like they looked at Matthew Thomas because Matthew Thomas, like I said, wasn't a commit. He was a guy that didn't pop up in the radar for USC until USC had already lost those games. You know, I mean, he didn't take right. his official visit until after USC lost in the Sun Bowl. So at that point, everybody in Florida, anybody in the SEC is going, huh, USC, they're not getting a five-star guy. And all they do is lose five-star guys at this point. They don't get five-star guys if people are along. And that was one of the reasons I think USC was almost able to get him. All right. Uh, one last thing, Gerard, before we let you go here. Uh, we had a question. I thought I killed it. I thought that was my time right there. I thought I got it done in two questions. Yeah, you pretty much did. That was like a 20-minute answer. But let's go David in Ladera Ranch real quick. He said, can you speak to what seems like a regional bias in the rivals' player rankings? I realize it's early, but how can it even be possible that there are only two players in the L.A. and Orange County area in the rivals' 100? And if you look at the rivals' 100 overall, I did a – Quick count. I think there's seven California players total, but I could be wrong on that. But what do you think about that, Gerard? Uh, I think that there's kind of a bias in football because of where the money is coming from. I mean, I think at the end of the day, if you really want to strip everything of what is and what isn't, you know, there's so much hype down there in the Southeast. And, you know, look, we've been down to the Southeast and we've seen those players those guys that are coming out, and they look like, you know, they're 25, 26 years old. A lot of them. <laughs> and, and really, they are physically more developed. It's just one of those things where you can eyeball a kid from Georgia and you can eyeball a kid from Alabama, and you go, wow, I mean, this dude is just ripped. He's 6'3", he runs, and you get enamored with it. And I think a lot of schools get enamored with just those kids just right out of the box because it's, you know, there's no coaching there. You know, you're just bringing in a kid that's really a, a great athlete, and you're expecting him just to out-talent everybody. I think the kids from the West Coast, there's not as much hype. There's not as much interest. You can see that on Twitter. It's one of those funny things that if you look on Twitter, and the kids are already becoming very aware of it and conscious of it, you know, the guys that have all these crazy amount of followers, they're mostly from the Southeast or the Midwest because that's where the fans are. That's where the football fans are just rabid, and they'll follow a kid on Twitter. People in California don't care. People in Southern California really, really don't care. I mean, they're out going to the beach, and they've got the Lakers, and they've got the Dodgers. It's just a different kind of culture. And so I think that in and of itself is a big player in all this. I mean, that has a lot, a lot to do with college football right now and, and, you know, where the TV networks are spending their money and where everybody's all enamored because it's, you know, down in the southeast, football is king. On the west coast, it's not. But to add to that is, the, like I said, the, felt, the development physically of some of the kids out here, they, they look like kids. You know, we go to these various camps and these combines and everything, and we see the West Coast kids, and they look like kids. They look like the kids that you went to high school with. They just look like kids. 
And it's just one of those things where you get two years into the program, you start to see them make up that physical development very quickly. And, you know, California is still this top state as far as getting draft picks, as far as NFL draft picks just in general over the last, I don't know, seven, seven eight years. Still California's number one. There's lots of guys going to Utah State. There's lots of guys going to Boise State. There's lots of California guys that fall through the cracks and end up at like places like Nevada because they don't really blossom until they get two years into college. And we've seen that. I mean, I always make the comparison, and I've probably made the comparison before on the Parastyle podcast, is Clay Matthews Jr. to Brian Cushing. Brian Cushing came out of New Jersey, right out of the box, ready to play. I mean, the guy just, you know, he, and he got hurt his freshman year and he was still playing. I mean, he killed his ankle. And the guy lost a bunch of weight because he couldn't lift, because he hurt his shoulder. It was a whole thing. But he still played as a true freshman and ended up starting as a true freshman. Clay Matthews wasn't on the map as a true freshman. Nobody knew his name as a true freshman. They didn't know Clay Matthews' kid was going to USC at that point, coming from a girl high school, 6'3", maybe 200 pounds. But look at them when they graduate. Look at those two guys, and look at them now in the NFL. I mean, all of a sudden, the West Coast kid, he makes up a lot of that physical development while he's in college. And I think that's really what, if you're in the Pac-12 and you are a good coach and you win consistently, it's because you're able to project your talent and you're willing to do so. You're not just sitting back, looking at highlight tapes, and looking at kids walking through your door going, oh, hey, that's a five-star. You know, there's a lot of those guys that are out there and they peak physically. And so, you know, I, I mean, I could make another uh, comparison would be uh, a more, more, you know, recent comparison, going to the five-star challenge and seeing Greg Bryant, the running back that went to Notre Dame uh, from uh, Heritage Atlantic High School, about 5'10"-ish, uh, probably about 200, 205 pounds. Kid looks like a bodybuilder. I mean, he's just ripped, huge calves, big as my neck, the guy just looks like he's been in college for two or three years. But that's kind of the guy you're going to see in college the next two or three years, too. I mean, you're not going to see a whole lot of physical development. He doesn't have a whole lot of weight to put on himself. He is pretty much there. And then you look at a kid like Justin Davis, who's 6'1", 210 pounds, and just looks like he hasn't even started lifting weights yet. So, you know, where are you going to go with that? Do you want to put your money into the kid that's going to make you look good, maybe as a true freshman into a sophomore year because, you know, physically he's capable of doing it immediately, but then taps out and peaks, you know, a year and a half into the program? Or do you put your money on the guy that maybe has to redshirt, maybe he's not going to be great his first year, but dang, man, you get him into a sophomore year and junior year, and all of a sudden the kid just jumps out at you and he's a horse. I think it's one of those things that, in terms of patience, uh, just in terms of the right now factor of, of recruiting, that's why you're going to see a lot of those Southeast kids always get more pub, kids from Texas, kids from Florida. It's A, it's the support, the money, the, the, the rabid fans, just the, the, the overall craziness of that region with football, and B, it's physical development. There's just a lot of kids out here on the West Coast it just takes them a little longer to come around. And don't ask me why that is. I don't really have any theories. It just is what it is. I've just seen it happen too many times where there's kids that are linemen like Chad Wheeler, 6'5", you know, 255 pounds to high school. And then he was there. He's 280 pounds at USC. He looks like he should be there. And he's a freaking vegetarian. I mean, good. If he wasn't a vegetarian, he'd probably be 300 pounds. So, you know, it can happen. Just have to have patience with it. And as far as rankings go, at the end of the day, it ends up probably evening out 
more than people think. Again, I think it's a lot to do with that 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 craziness and, the, and kind of the psychological thing going on in the southeast of oh yeah this guy's the best and this guy's the best and people out here buy into it you know they buy into the whole oh Reuben Foster is the greatest thing since sliced bread man Reuben Foster is just another Vontez Burfitt he had Vontez Burfitt out here same dude you know he those guys come around you know but because he's in the southeast and he committed to Auburn and got the Auburn tattoo and then decides he's going to commit to Alabama and oh wait no maybe I'm going to Georgia because my baby mama wants me to go to Georgia all that kind of stuff <laughs> happens out there and it becomes crazy becomes a circus and people on the west coast buy into it just like the people in the southeast the thing is the people in the southeast live it the people on the west coast go take off and go play volleyball during the weekend. Sounds like what I was going to do. Okay. Yeah, sounds like somebody we know. And I'm also going to go eat a pork chop now that you said vegetarian, so I'm just going to do that. There you uh, go. That's my lunch. All right, well, Gerard, thanks very much for uh, coming on the show and sharing all your recruiting insights. We did a couple of shows in a row, the regular Peristyle podcast. Maybe we'll get back to the Trojan Blast here at some point, but uh, thanks again, and we'll uh, talk to you soon. All right, thank you very much. All right, everyone else, thank you very much for tuning into the Peristyle podcast. Spring ball starts tomorrow. Don't forget, first 200 fans can get in there on Dado Field. Check that out and check us back next week for another edition of the Peristyle Podcast. You've been listening to the Peristyle Podcast presented by uscfootball.com. Be sure to tune in next week for the latest news on Trojan football and recruiting. And don't forget, you can automatically download the podcast directly to your iPod or MP3 player for free. Just click the iTunes link on peristylepodcast.com or search for Peristyle Podcast at the iTunes Music Store. 